We are continuing in Nehemiah chapter 4, and we're really seeing here a picture in chapters 4, 5, and 6, a, a picture of spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is a reality, a significant part of the Christian life, whether we recognize it or not. In Daniel chapter 10, for instance, a demonic spirit called the Prince of Persia interfered with Daniel's prayer life. In the Gospels, we see numerous times when Jesus and the disciples have encounters with demons. And we see in other places in the New Testament where we are warned of Satan's schemes. A friend of mine who is at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, Chuck Lawless, wrote the following words. He says, we face three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, according to Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. In some cases, the three are so interwoven that it's difficult to tell them apart. Our primary problem is not Satan, though. We are our biggest problem. So in spiritual warfare, our problem is not the problem. We are the problem. You may ask, how so? Well, it's really in how we prepare for spiritual warfare or fail to prepare for spiritual warfare, how we respond to the enemy's attacks or don't respond, and how we wage war against these enemies that makes all the difference for believers in spiritual warfare. And Nehemiah chapter 4 not only teaches believers to expect opposition when doing God's work, but it also gives instruction on how to face it and how to overcome it. So last week, we began in chapter 4, and we saw the first wave of the verbal assault that was brought against the people of God. We saw the enemy's ridicule, and we saw this in five questions that were raised. What are these feeble Jews doing? And here, Sam Ballot, the leader of these enemies, pointed to the frailty of the people of God. The second question was, are they going to restore it for themselves? And here he was pointing out the inadequacy of the people of God. And then he, he asked the question, can they offer sacrifices? In other words, he pointed to the fallacy he thought they had in trusting in God, saying that their God was weak and that he would not respond to their prayers, he would not respond to their efforts and help them, but that they were alone and therefore un, going to be unable to do the work that they were setting out to do. The next question was, can they finish in a day? And he was kind of a smart aleck, uh, kind of, he might have been from Cleveland, Ohio, I don't know, that's where I'm from, and a lot of us are that way. But um, what he was saying here is, if you can't do it in a day, which you can't, you're not going to finish at all. You don't have the tenacity, you don't have what it takes to finish the job that you're starting. It's just not going to happen. And then the fifth question he asks is, can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble, even the burned ones? And he's talking about the impossibility of the task. It's just an impossible task, uh, given the situation, given just how, how terrible the condition was of the city and, and the tremendous amount of work that it would take. And, and by the way, they'd been there for many, many years with it in that condition, having done really nothing 
to take care of these walls and all the rubble from these walls with very gigantic stones, by the way, that they would have to maneuver and refashion and, and deal with. And so he just said, it's impossible for you to do this. It's interesting, though, he's going to find out as we go on in Nehemiah that in 52 days, from the day they started, 52 days later, they completed the work that the enemy scoffed at and said they couldn't complete. And then we see the people of God's response, and we, we talked about this. Nehemiah first prayed, and we see this in verse 4. He says, hear, O our God, how we are despised. Return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you, for they have demoralized the builders. And we see here that this answer um, to them in this prayer to God is not what we would expect among Christian circles today. But there are things that we should hate as Christians and we should hate sin. We should hate its consequences, which ultimately are the loss of blessing and the loss of life. Just understand this. With sin, there is always loss. Now, I know what might be triggering in um, my brothers and sisters who are Southern Baptists. And that is, you may say, oh, wait, are you saying that we can lose our salvation? No. But that's really a bad way to approach our relationship with Christ, isn't it? Think about it this way. By the way, my wife's not with me today. Her mother came to visit um, my mother-in-law, and so I sent them away to go visit grandchildren. So there they are. So actually, she really begged to be here today. I said, no, 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 you need more time with the grandchildren. You really do. And so she's there. But say, say I did this. I viewed our, our marriage like this, that as long as she doesn't divorce me, we're good. So I do whatever I want to do. I don't care about anything she wants or desires in life. As long as she doesn't divorce me, it doesn't matter. We're all good. What kind of marriage is that? What kind of relationship would that be? And yet how many of us, and I want to talk about us as my circles, Southern Baptists, we like to say once saved, always saved, and I believe in the perseverance of the saints, but let me tell you that anytime we're holding on to something like that and saying, as long as I can't lose my salvation, all is good, that really makes me question whether you know the Lord at all in the first place. It's like, if I feel this way about my wife, do I really love her? Or am I just good as long as she doesn't get rid of me? What a terrible way to live a marriage. What a terrible way to walk in a relationship with Christ. And so there is always loss. There is loss of opportunity when we sin. There is loss of blessing. There is loss of sweet fellowship. There were years ago... Um, when our youngest son was in high school, he was on a robotics team, and he was a programmer. And I will tell you, um, I am very much a homebody, and I don't like to travel at all. In fact, whenever I travel, bad, 
bad things happen. I mean, really bad things. I've been where a war broke out and saw missiles strike just about a mile and a half from me. Um, I've been left alone in a 14 million populated city in Wuhan, China, where I was the only white guy that spoke English, and everybody's looking at me like, who are you? And there's this like New York City cop coming to me and saying, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, I don't know English. And they left me there for an hour, um, the people that had me, because they got the wrong place. So they mixed up where they were supposed to pick me up. And I started to get afraid, and then I realized, well, why should I be afraid? Because that's not going to help anything. Um, I didn't have a phone because the government has control of the phone, so I, I didn't have a phone to call anyone, couldn't talk to anyone. I'm just there, people walking by, kind of looking at me like, what are you doing here? And I was beginning to wonder myself. So those are just a couple of them. I almost lost my son in Belgium. Um, that's another thing. The worst thing I, or the best thing I ever happen, had happened to me traveling was when I went to Ecuador and the flight crew got drunk the night before and just didn't show up to fly us. That was okay because they got another crew the next day and I made it home safely. So that was light compared last time I went on a, a, a trip here in the States, um, here at the um, um, Louisville International Airport, um, someone in security stole my wallet. In security stole my wallet. Like when you put it in the tray and it goes through, someone was waiting on the side, took it and went off with it. They have lots of cameras there. So if you're gonna steal, that's not the place to do it because they caught him, okay? But I'm just saying that these things happen to me, okay? So when, when we, I don't even know why I was saying all this now. I just went off on, uh, on all, these, all these things. Um, but, but here's the thing. There is always loss when we, sin, and I was talking about my trip to go with my son. So here's what happens. My wife begs me to go to this, this uh, tournament he's in. Now, it's not that I'm not interested in my son, but my son was a programmer. So he really wasn't involved in the actual competition. He programmed it all back weeks before while he was at home. And so he had nothing to do with anything that was going on there. In fact, when we went there, he was out with guys and girls just running around. And so I was watching more of it than what he was, actually. But I did go. But when I went, I didn't want to go. She said, I'll take care. I'm, I'm usually on a very strict diet um, for health issues. So uh, she said, I'll make sure you have the right food. I said, well, I need to exercise. I'll, I've got a place for you to go exercise. And she took care of everything I said as an excuse not to go. So I went. When we got there, I acted like a two-year-old. I just sold up, didn't want to talk, didn't want to have anything to do with her or them or anything. And my wife, we've been married a little over 34 years. I've told you this. We dated five and a half before that. We basically grew up together. And all our time, I've seen her maybe cry, maybe four times, maybe. I heard her in the bathroom weeping because I was just acting like a jerk. Now, is she still with me? Well, you can say, well, that calls into question. She's not here today, is she? <laughs> she is still with me, and that was many years ago. And in fact, the first time she heard me say this was actually online in Zoom this last year. She didn't even know I told this story, and um, she said, I've forgotten all about that. 
Well, I haven't forgotten it because I realize that the opportunity for blessing in that weekend where we, had, where we could have been together and enjoyed each other, well, I just lost it. I'll never get that weekend back. Now, we've had several other weekends and several other trips and had a wonderful time. But there's always loss, you see, when we sin. Just because we don't lose our salvation doesn't mean that there's not loss when we sin. And so the problem here is we should hate sin because there's always loss with sin. It's always destructive in some way, somehow. What we also see here is a determined mindset. It says in verse 6, they built. So we built. We built the wall. And they kept going with the work. And this is typically Nehemiah. What he does, he prays and he acts. And you've heard me say this, and I'll probably say it again, but one of the most spiritual things we can do is act upon our prayers. It's not just praying, but acting in faith. You know, James, what does he say about faith? He says, faith without works is dead. You say you have faith, but you have no works. You don't act upon your faith. You have no evidence of faith in your life. What good is that faith then? So true faith is the faith that will have action that goes in light of that faith, that acts in light of the faith that we have. And that's exactly what Nehemiah did. And this was the pattern for his life. So we pick up in verses seven through nine. And we see here that the enemy just amps up their attack. And in the second wave, they move from vertical ridicule to physical assault. And look at verse seven. Now, when Samballot, Tobiah, and the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry. All of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. But we prayed to our God, and because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. So what do we see here in the enemies conspiring? We see, first of all, the escalation of the enemies of God. There's an escalation here. And it's something I think sometimes as Christians, we think that if we'll pray... And if we do the right things, then the enemy will back off. No, not necessarily. What we see in Nehemiah's situation was they prayed, they took the right actions, and the enemy heard about it and said, okay, we're going to do more then, because what we did wasn't enough. And what makes it worse is this escalation involved more people. As you read this, look in verse 7 again. There are a lot more people mentioned here as enemies than have been mentioned before. So now there are more enemies standing up against them than what there were in the first place. So the numbers of their adversaries grow. And not only that, not only does it escalate with just the, the numbers of enemies, it escalates also from verbal ridicule to actually, we're going to do something to you people. We're physically going to attack you, and we'll probably kill some of you. We are going to come at you this way now. 
And so the hostilities heat up. We, we're all familiar with the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Well, since their names and insults had no effect, they're like, well, we are going to use the sticks and stones then. That's what we will do then. They will hurt you, and we're going to hurt you with them. That is what we're going to do. And so this is what happens. Why are they doing this? The reason they are doing this is because, well, one, of course, we know they are enemies of God, and they are enemies of the people of God. But in this particular instance, in this context, why are they doing this in particular? They want the people to quit. They want them to stop building the wall. Quit doing what God would have you do. And we're going to do whatever it takes to make you quit doing what God would have you to do. It reminds me again of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Be on the alert. Stand, in, stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now, Paul wrote in a patriarchal society, and he says, act like men. What he's saying here is be courageous. I have seen way too many men that are wimps. So don't take this to be some kind of gender statement here. It's in their context. But the deal is stand firm in the faith, be courageous, act like men, he says, be strong. And this is what we are called to do as the people of God, to be strong and to be strong in the Lord because we ourselves are weak, but we look to him and we stand firm and we are courageous and we are strong because of who he is. And there are far too many of us in the body of Christ today that are wimps. Yep, that's the word I used. Wimps, cowards, fearful. And there are far too many of us that don't take a stand for what is right. Oh, we get upset when people belittle us, or we get upset when people don't treat us nicely, but we don't stand up for the gospel like we should. We don't stand up for the word of God, and we are not strong in our faith and being loving and persistent with the things that God has called us to do, but instead, we complain about them and moan over everything just like they complain about us and moan about us. And we need to be a people that stand firm in faith. That means unyielding to this world and staying true to God's call upon us. Not to get caught up in the stuff that they're caught up in. And that's what they would like us to do. And it is interesting, Paul says, let all that you do, again, in verse 14 here, 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let all that you do be done in love. Now, I want to come back to that. But in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul wrote this, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. So if you take what he said in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let all that you do be in love, be done in love. And then he says here, don't look out on your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. This says something about our calling. We need to continue to do the work 
that God has called us to do as the people of God because it demonstrates not only our love for God, but our love for one another. There is nothing more selfish. Maybe you, you could think of something, but very few, if any, anything that's more selfish than quitting. And we think it's about us. It is not about us. It is about the glory of God. It is about those who are looking to us. Do you realize that the scripture teaches that we assemble ourselves together? Hebrews says that we need to, to assemble ourselves together so that we might be what? An encouragement for one another. That is why we come together. That's why we don't normally, under normal conditions, just have a recording of, of, of a sermon and listen to it that way. I tell you what, every week I listen to at least three or four sermons. And that's still not assembling together and encouraging one another in the faith. And quitting is quitting on the people of God. Quitting is quitting on God himself. And quitting is quitting on ourselves for what God has chosen us to be for his glory as his people. There are far too many quitters in the church. And I will tell you, I was talking to someone this week that's an unbeliever. Just reminded me of something. She was saying, I don't know about the, you Baptists and all this, but all I remember is that they were often just fighting in their churches and starting new churches. I remember my dad used to talk about this. He said, this is the way we do missions as Southern Baptists. We have a church, a fight in the church, and so we split the church, and we start a new church, and we call it something like Harmony Baptist Church or Fellowship Baptist Church. And the world laughs at us because we do not have the faithfulness to stick in there with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and be the people of God that God has called us to be. Through thick and thin, as family, and to hold up one another. Yes, there are days, all of us, almost all of us maybe, I can't speak for everyone, but a lot of us, we just want to quit. I just don't feel like doing it today. It's too much today. And that's why we need one another to encourage us, to stick with it, and to not quit on one another, but to be faithful to one another. That is what we have been called to do. And I will read this in Hebrews 10, verses 23 and following. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is what we've been called to. They were isolated. There was isolation. They were surrounded. If you look at these people that's mentioned here in the passage we just read in verse 7, if you know the geography, what it's saying here is they had enemies on all sides. They were completely surrounded by the enemy. 
as believers today, if our enemy is the world and it is the flesh and it is the devil, which Paul tells us, and we see this written and, and played out in the, the New Testament, then we too are surrounded by the enemy. Our situation is such that we have the enemy of the world, we have the devil, and what makes it worse, we have our own flesh, our sinful nature within us that's at war with us as believers. We are definitely surrounded, and we need one another. We need to, as we read a while back in Zephaniah 3.3, We need to stand shoulder to shoulder as we go into battle, encouraging one another, picking up one another, loving one another. This is how God ordained it as he has given us the community of faith. This war is not to be fought alone. And you say, I have the Lord Jesus Christ. Then you, if you, if you put aside his church, you have denied him because the church is the body of Christ. And he has given himself to us by giving us the body and by putting us in community. Each one of us, as Paul teaches, working parts of the body dependent on one another. And we need to not quit And this is selfishness. It is selfishness when we do this. How many times in the church are people prone to quit? Because somebody said something. Somebody did something that we don't like or or we don't care for. Well... Reminds me when I was a kid. Yeah, it is childish to act that way. So I remember when I was a little guy, my parents made me do something I didn't want to do. I don't remember what it was. There are plenty of things they told me to do I didn't want to do, so I, it's all, all, that's all a blur to me. But I remember on one particular occasion, I'm like, I'm done with this. And so I started getting my clothes out of, of the, my drawer and, and laying them out and getting uh, ready to pack them up And my mom came in, and I thought, yeah, I'm going to show her. She's going to be upset here. And you know what she said? You know, you've got a lot of clothes there. Let me go get the suitcase for you so you can have something to put them in as you get ready to go. I'm like, what? Like, yeah, I I want you to have a good trip, and so let me help you out with this. Well, that just didn't go anyway the way I thought it was going to go. It's childish. It's selfish. It's selfish. People do things. Wake up. People say things they shouldn't say. People do things they shouldn't do in the church, outside the church. I do it all the time. If Ann were here, she would tell you this. That's why it's a blessing. And I, I haven't told you this. My wife is partially deaf. And so if you talk to her, she doesn't respond to you. She doesn't hear very well. Now, I will tell you, deep down, I feel like that may be a blessing for her living with me. So, um, and sometimes I talk really loud because she can't hear, and I'll say, um, did you hear me? 
And she'll answer me and say, how can I not hear you? And so, yes, she can, she can hear if, if I speak loud enough. But the deal is, we say things, we do things, it's family. But we love each other. We, we're mature enough to understand that. We work it out. We seek to forgive one another. Because we need one another, whether we sometimes feel like it or not. That's family. That's maturity. Where would your family be if everyone in your family bugged out when you said something you shouldn't say or did something you shouldn't have done? We wouldn't have a family. And we all know that. And so we need each other. But they wanted them to quit. And they were isolated. And notice the people's response here. Well, we see here again as they respond to this in verse 9, but we prayed to our God, and because of them, we set up a guard against them day and night. So they prayed again, and they took action to put up guards for this. But it goes on, and we see the third wave here, and it's an internal assault, you know, it's one thing. I, I will tell you I struggle with, I've struggled with this my entire life. And I've been in the church my entire life. And I've been a believer since I was eight years old. I get when believers act like, or I'm sorry, I get when unbelievers act like unbelievers. It's much more difficult when believers act like unbelievers. But we do at times. Because... We haven't seen Jesus face to face. We're, we, we don't know as we are known. We have not been made like him. And so we have this sin nature in us. Oh, he's working on us. And I look forward to the day when he's, his work is complete. And he promises he will complete that work in us someday. That day hasn't happened yet for any of us that are sitting here this morning or me standing here. This hasn't happened yet. And the internal assault is a reality. What I mean by this, it's, it's among the people of God. And notice in verse 10, thus in Judah, it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing, yet there is much rubbish and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. Our enemies said they will not know or see it until we come among them, kill them and put a stop to their work. When the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. Then I stationed men in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and exposed places. I stationed the people in the families with their swords, spears, and bows. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. Isn't it interesting here, the enemy's influence, though? The people of God began believing what the enemy was saying about them. And I tell you what, that's not only in Nehemiah's day, but it happens today as well. Who are you listening to? Are you listening to the enemy to get the evaluation of where things are in this world and where you are? Or are you listening to God and his word? 
to get the truth of who you are and who is in control of this world. I'm tired of us being wimps, me included. I'm tired of watching the news and wringing my hands saying, oh, no, what's next? What's going to happen? I don't know what we're going to do. It doesn't matter. What matters is I know that God is doing what he needs to do in his time and in his way. And I can trust him in that. And I can be fearless and not fearful, not because I look at myself, because of my God who is great and strong and he is over all these things. And it is time for us to buck up a little bit And it doesn't matter how much fleshly muscle we have or anything, but that we would be strong in heart and spirit because our faith is in the one true God. And yes, the enemy wants us to wring our hands. And by the way, I remember teaching a Wednesday night Bible study. People came in, they'd been watching the news, and it was terrible. That's that's hard for you to believe, isn't it? But I don't even know what it was, but it was terrible what was going on. And they were talking about it, and they're like, oh, I don't know, this world, it's this. And I'm like, have you read the, I didn't say this to them, but I was thinking, have you read the book? The Bible tells us things are going to get worse, and then they're still going to get even more worse. And that he is in control of these things. He is not shaken. He is not surprised. And so we should trust him in these things. And not let the world bring us down to be a witness to this world as if our God is weak. And we show that by our own fearfulness and weakness that we look to in ourselves rather than the strength and power of our God. And it's important for us to move past us and look to him. What if David had looked at Goliath, and said, oh, he's too big. I can't take him. That's what everybody else told David. But what did David say? He said, my God gave me victory over a lion. He gave me victory over a bear. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that would bring down the people of God and dishonor our God? He will come down because the Lord is with me. And he's just a little scrawny kid in front of a seasoned warrior that was not even typical for a seasoned warrior, but beyond. He was the best of the best. And yet God brought him down. And it's time for us to stop listening all the time to the enemy. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, be not deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. It's not just who you're listening to, but who you're hanging out with. And it may be that you're hanging out with on on your um, TV or on whatever devices you use to, to get information streamed into you today. Who are you listening to? What are you taking in? I tell you, we teach our children... We want our children to be, to be able to be discerning, to pick the right kind of friends. Isn't that right? 
Parents try to protect their children from being in the wrong crowd because we know they're prone to do the wrong thing. When does that change? All of a sudden, when we get to be 30 or 40 or 50, we act like something has changed. No, it hasn't. We still hang out with the wrong people and take in the wrong stuff. It is going to be detrimental and is detrimental to us. Please don't take this the wrong way. I spend a lot, I'm paid, you know this, my job is to study the Bible. That's crazy. I couldn't dream this up when I was a young man. And it's such a joy. But you know the truth of it? This is what makes me scratch my head. That I'm in God's word and I really desire to be the man of God he wants me to be. And I still struggle with my thought life thinking rightly about who God is and how I can trust him and how prone I can be to fear and all the stuff that goes on in this world. And I think to myself then, if I were not in God's word, seeking his word and feeding off of it, where would I be then? Because I'm not in a great spot, the spot I'd like to be already. We desperately need the word of God. We desperately need the people of God. And God has made it that way. And he has given us his spirit to dwell in us where we're never alone. And we need to recognize that that's where we draw our strength, through the word of God, by the spirit of God, through the community of Christ, the people of God, the church. And these people were hanging out too closely to the wrong people. And it's no wonder they were actually repeating the very words of the enemy and believing them. And we will do this when we're not listening to God's word and giving ourselves to God's word. But we need it. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 20 and 20 through 22. For every one of God's promises is yes in him. Speaking of Christ, yes in Christ. Therefore, the amen is also spoken through him by us for God's glory. Now it is God who strengthens us with you in Christ and has anointed us. He has also sealed us and given us the spirit as a down payment in our hearts. In 2 Timothy, 2, uh, 2 Timothy 1, verse 7, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. I kid about Anne a lot. She's all of like 5'2 and doesn't weigh very much. She's easy to just move around if I, if I really wanted to. I've never been around a person, and I say this in the best way, stubborn. And she's stubborn about doing the right thing. When my father passed away, my mom had terrible, just a whole litany of physical ailments. And one thing she needed to have is, is uh, dialysis five days a week for three hours a day. And Ann said, we're going to take her in 
and I'm going to take care of her, and I'm going to go get the training, and I'm going to do this dialysis with her, and I'm going to take care of your mom. And I will tell you, I love my mom. She's a hard woman to live with. I mean, I see that, say that in all seriousness. She hated my wife. She hated anyone that was an outsider that wasn't our four no more. Me, my brother, my dad, and her. You were an outsider. You were not a part of the family. Now, grandkids came along. Okay, they're in. But in-laws, truly, they're her, were outlaws. And I had to go in. One time, she, she had... Uh, Ann was help, trying to move a, a tray away to get to her to check her blood pressure. And my mom grabbed the tray and pulled it back. When it did, it caught Ann's hand, fingers underneath there. And I had never heard Ann so quiet. I had never heard her yell and scream, but I just hear this screaming. And I go in there, and I see my mom just like this, pulling it and looking at her in the face as she's doing that to her. I did not want her to be there. I'll be honest with you. I had two teenagers that couldn't wait to get big enough, old enough to get out of our house because of the situation that was there. Who wants to live in that? But my wife, she said, We're gonna t I'm going to take care of your mom. And she says, you're going to be someday happy I did. And my sons, she says, are going to see that we've done the right thing someday. And it's true. Everything she said is true. And she took care of a woman who hated her and said it to her. Would even talk about divorce and say to me, she'd say, you don't want to be with her. Now, she wasn't in her right mind. She had dementia, and she was losing her mind. Although I will say with her situation, she said it so Clear-eyed, it was hard for me to tell where it was coming from sometimes. It was just a difficult situation. Why do I say that? It's not me. It wasn't me in that. But my wife did not have the spirit of timidity. She was going to do right by me, even though I didn't want her to do it. She's going to do right by my sons and right unto God because she believed that was the right thing to do for my mom. And my point is, that little woman that comes in here sometimes with me, you don't have to be loud. You don't have to be an extrovert. You don't have to be big or any of these things to be strong in the Lord. And to be fearless, to do what God has called you to do. This is no lie, my, and I, could, I agree with them. My, my sons, they'll even say, our mom is an angel. And they'll say, Dad, well, if he is, he's the other kind, maybe. I don't know. They don't say that. But it, she, she has done this. And she has been a witness to us. It's interesting because when I was a young man and I began thinking maybe someday I'll marry, I didn't know what God's will was. This is what I prayed, though. God, give me a woman, if you will, that makes me want to love you more and serve you more. And she bore, has borne that witness in my life. And I say that 
not to just hold her up to you, but I say that because it's not about size, it's not about giftedness, it's not about how much you know. Um, she cannot, it's ironic, I'm a professor, I have been in school nearly all my life in one aspect or another, and for years, she would get depressed every fall with me going to school because she hates school so much. And I love that about her. I don't need to marry a teacher. I'm already a teacher. It's an, I hear enough of me. I don't need to hear another one. But she's gifted in her way, and you're gifted in yours. Be faithful. Don't be timid. We have not been given a spirit of timidity, but we have been given power and love and discipline. Psalm 27, verses 1 through 3. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? When evildoers come upon me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and my enemies, they stumbled and fell. Though a host encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war rise up against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. Who are you listening to? Well, notice their response. They take action. He gathers the people. He, he puts them in places to fill in the, the exposed places. And he, he puts them together with their families, saying, you need to fight together. But notice the statements in verse, or that he makes in verse 14. He says, first of all, he says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Why? Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. If we're afraid, it's because we're not looking to our Savior the way we ought to. That's just it. Let's just be, let's just be honest about it. We're not looking to him if we are giving in to fear. And we have good reason to be afraid if we're looking at ourselves. But we need to look to him. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And then notice he says, fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your lives, and your houses. One of the things that has, over, that, that has hit me in my ministry in the last few years that I had no concept of, and I hope this doesn't sound as bragging, it's just the nature of my ministry that God's called me to. There are a lot of people that know of my ministry and have listened to my ministry that I'll never see. And um, I write for Explore the Bible. They say there's a million people that use that. And I'm not bragging. Here's what I'm getting at. It's put more pressure in a, in a sense because I didn't realize that what I do as a believer, matters so much to others as well. And that's true about you. Even if my wife, being a housewife, if her influence had only been on my two, our two sons, well, both of our sons are engaged in a lot of things with a lot of people, and her influence of her walk with God goes with them. You have an influence. It matters. 
what you do. It matters your strength. And we need to look to God and not ourselves and be strong. Notice in verse 15, when the enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. The enemy was frustrated when they saw this and they quit, at least at this point, because they saw that the people weren't going to quit. Here's an end to this thing. And if you haven't read the end of the book, God wins. And also the people of God in Christ win. And we are victorious in him. So they took countermeasures. They took up arms. They established uh, an alarm system. And they remained vigilant. And God saw to it that the work continued until it would be completed. Let me ask you a few questions before we go. How does your life demonstrate you can be counted on to do your part in God's work when things get difficult? How does your life in Christ demonstrate that you're not a quitter? Another question, what people or platforms are you listening to that cause you to doubt God or that encourage you to trust in him? Again, it gets down to who are you listening to? Are you listening to God's word? Do you believe it? You can say you believe it. Most of us. Southern Baptists, we say we believe it. We say it with our chest, too. We believe it. You know what? It's really, again, what James said, that faith, your belief, it's nothing without work, without practice, without demonstration, without living it out. That's the faith that the Scriptures speaks of. And finally, what measures and countermeasures are you taking to be victorious in the spiritual war? What are you setting up in your life so that you are listening to the right things, listening to God's word, listening to the right kind of music? And I sound like, you know, I, you say, wow, man, now he's just really legalistic. No, I'm just, I'm just talking about feeding my, my, my mind with things I need it to be fed with. It just means that I'm already dealing with a sin nature in, in me that already has a terrible perspective on things, much less what I hear outside. And so what measures are you taking and what countermeasures are you taking so that you might be victorious in this spiritual war that's taking place? Well, in the words of Paul, Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Several years ago, I had a teacher say it this way. If God is for us, well, then everyone else might as well be. Because all that matters is that God is for us. 
and he is. He's for his children. I love coming here because I see so many children in the congregation. You love your children. You have them here because you love them. It's not anything you wouldn't do for your children. As much as you love your child, as much as I love my sons, as much as I love my grandsons, doesn't compare to God's love for you and for me and for his children. And if he is for us, then who can be against us? And you know the answer. No one can. Not really. So let us be the people he's called us to be to his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We desperately need your word. We need your word because it is the revelation of yourself. It is how you have revealed yourself and are revealing yourself to us through the work of your spirit that, that speaks to our hearts through your word. And you have spoken to us ultimately in your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we know that Satan tried to tempt him, tried to dissuade him. The enemy tried to bring him down, cause him to quit. But Father, we thank you that he stayed true to his calling because of his love for us and his faithfulness to you. And it's because of that, those of us in Christ have life and we have it abundantly. And Father, we thank you that you have loved us as sons and daughters such that you have called us to do your work. And I pray that we would be found faithful. Father, we know that the enemy wants us to stop, wants us to quit, wants us to be fearful. But help us to remember that greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. And may we be someday in your presence offering you the sacrifices of these things you've called us to so that you would be glorified eternally through your church. And it is in Jesus' name we pray, amen.